out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, writer and also actor Rob Monk, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and lots more besides. has a new album coming out called Phased Out, which is going to be um, released on Magic Door label. And um, he's had a life in early years of music, then a bit of acting, then coming back into the music world. But you're going to find out much more in this interview. So after uh, several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and uh, the musical awakening. Anyway, Bob, tell us what happened. I, you know, I don't know if it was anything specific. I, I had older brothers, which I think is always, or older, you know, I think older siblings are always just sort of a great leader into 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 music and kind of what was cool. And yes. and I had um, I had like a blended family with stepbrothers and brothers who were all kind of in, into different stuff. So I had. Uh, some older stepbrothers who were listening to like Elvis Costello and television when I was like seven or eight or nine. So I was exposed to that, but I had uh, another brother who was really into um, like uh, pop. So he would listen to Casey Kasem. I don't know if you're familiar. You know who Casey Kasem is? Do they have that in England? Mm, He did the top 40 countdown um, every weekend, like from the billboard charts. It was was like a syndicated radio show and it's actually still on Sirius XM. They have it still. So you can go back in time. It'll be like, April, you know, 22nd, 1973 and hear like the top 40 songs, but it was a lot of like AM pop. And, um, and that I think was like the stuff that maybe stuck with me the most, but I listened to a lot of metal and, uh, hard rock. And then, uh, like around like the late eighties, my brother, I had an older brother who was starting to get into what they called college radio back then, yes. which was all kind of indie stuff. And so I sort of, turned away from mainstream rock and classic rock and started hearing, you know, bands like REM and the replacements. I love the replacements. And I just, uh, I started to turn more towards, you know, more interesting music, I think. Yeah. And then, interesting. And were your parents, kind of your parents or, you know, step parents, were they, were they at all musical? Did they have a, a kind of a musical influence on you at all? Uh, my stepfather my parents weren't that into music. My step, my my stepfather liked a lot of forty stuff. He was older, and he loved right. a lot of Billie Holiday and you know, kind of like some big big band stuff and Ella Fitzgerald, kind of jazz singers. And I like I like that too. I loved. Billie what Holiday about Glenn and Miller and the Andrews Sisters? Did you? Oh yeah, all that stuff too. Well, yeah. we had because um, I grew up in a village. Um, and it had, uh, and and you probably, I don't know if you, you you must know, but we had a lot of Second World War aerodromes in East Anglia, which is on where the, the the side that I'm based on, the east side, which is nearest Europe. So there was like I don't know thirty odd aeroplane aerodromes, and um, they were all sort of populated with the American servicemen and women. And um, yeah, so there was a lot of yeah, like Glenn Miller played in Hellsworth, which was very close, and I I was from a small village called Metfield, and we had an aerodrome as well. So the American American kind of influence was slightly still there with my parents' generation who can remember this amazing experience of suddenly going from very rural village life to suddenly, you know, all these 3,000 Americans appearing suddenly almost with planes. I mean, no one had seen a plane before, let alone sort of an aerodrome and 
sewage, you know, people, electricity, cinemas, bowling alleys, you know, this was village life in the 30s, would have had nothing like that, you know, and suddenly this very sort of strange world, which is kind of a long way of saying that, you know, <laughs> big bands suddenly appeared in our area, you know, before I was born. But yes, the legacy was still there. People said, oh, yes, that's the aerodrome that Glenn Miller played. And that was where, you know, every aerodrome had their own band, you know, which was always based on big band. And because I, that was my playground was the aerodrome. So we we became quite obsessed with, you know, finding out more information about that period of the of modern history, really. So, um, yeah. Well, it's kind of the, the American invasion, I suppose, as the, opposed to the, the, friendly, the British invasion. They called it yeah. the friendly invasion, didn't they? So uh, there you go. So the special relationship, which is all very nice. Yeah. So because it was interesting you mentioned the older brother because my, you know, I had two older brothers. One wasn't really that into music in a passionate way, but the other was. And it was all the prog mm -hmm. stuff of the 70s that he um, he had and he loved. And I also loved it because I, I was kind of curious and also you know, you're forbidden to listen to these records when he wasn't about. So one obviously sneaked in and listened to these records with great enthusiasm and, and curiosity because, you know, Rick Wakeman's solo work as well as, you know, all the other bits and pieces, Van Gellis and, um, yeah, yes, Genesis, all that kind of malarkey. So it was interesting. And what was, was Gentle, so... Giant, Gentle Giant in that group too? No, bizarrely. Giant. I mean, I've often wondered why there were some, you know, he had the Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, but, you know, and he, I think he had a Camel album, but not Gen Gentle Giant, actually, which was very strange. And I've also, and interestingly enough, and I'm desperate to try and get hold of one of the members because, because a lot of indie bands from the 80s did a, uh, they they worked with a producer who was one of the uh, a member of Gentle Giant and they said he was just such a nice guy and such a lovely bloke and his wife would come through and listen to the song and almost give a nod of approval and they knew that was they had got a good take you know and it was like and it was like god I really would love to meet the, not meet him but interview him for the show because yeah it was very strange when they went you know mentioned that a member of Gentle Giant being a really good produce for indie bands so i thought mm, interesting but they're still going yeah. so that's all this all good we're lucky actually on that so what was your kind of first gig you went to at this stage i i think the first concert i went to was steel pulse right a bit of Ruth <laughs> reggae. Weird, yeah it was it was i, I was in um my parents had like, like a, a country home up in, in the catskills which is like a a mountain range above New York, which is kind of a, that's where like Woodstock, uh, I don't know if you've, yes. you've heard of Woodstock, the festival, but the, there's a, a little town there, which has kind of become kind of this afterglow of that festival. It's real hippie, you know, kind <laughs> of hippie, hippie town. And we were just walking around one day and heard some music and I saw Steel Pulse. Um, that was really cool. I, yes. I, I thought that was really cool. And I had like a reggae kind of phase in high school. Yeah, was that during the eighties? By the way, I've been trying to get a sort of idea. Yeah, yeah, that would have been like late eighties, right? Probably. So, because in this country we had our great DJ called John Peel, who used to play a lot oh, sure. of alternative stuff, and um, and obviously, you know, and I became obsessed with John Peel in the eighties, and you know, recorded his show every evening, you know, for forty five minutes on my trusty TDK D ninety cassette, and. Um, so I think anything he played, I I wanted to like, even some of it I couldn't. But but the the roots reggae stuff was huge, you know. I'd, so I got obsessed with all those bands like Steel Steel Pulse and Misty and Roots and Aswad and Sly and Robbie. They would do this thing called the Taxi Gang, where they'd play for three hours and have a different front 
front man or front woman most of it was a man actually you know who would just go out and do their little set and and we just you know I didn't smoke but frankly you know one got stoned because it was just so thick with smoke really so um there you go they were quite something those gigs yeah yeah um my friend I have a close friend who was in a band that did a peel session with Chili Sun oh my god who was that uh he's in a band called Paul though you know you ever hear of an American band called Paul though from Chapel Hill which is kind of like Peel LVO. They were kind of a they're on a label called Merge back in the nineties and they were uh they were actually sort of influenced by Prague a little bit. If you ever listen to them, I think you might dig them. They were yes. put out a bunch of records uh on Merge and then they kind of disappeared. He still does other stuff now, but uh yeah, they were but he did a, a session with like a peel session that always felt like kind of John a big thing. That's that's just like, you know, that's the whole that's like you know, you get that moment, don't you? So when did you when did you sort of start to sort of veer towards being in a band rather than just being a fanboy like myself? Uh, in high school, I played in the talent show, and we did what did we do. We did a talent show in high school in like 1986 or something, and we did Velvet Underground's Heroin, or I don't know. We we're just. <laughs> Uh, and then I was in a band, I was in like a cover band in high school. And a lot of the guys in the band, like the Grateful Dead, which I did not at the time, yes. being aggressively did not like them. So I'd sort of stand off to the side of the stage and then I would come out and sing the songs that I sang, which were like some Trog songs and the Doors and the Buzzcocks. And it was kind of a all over the place. Uh, Jonathan Richmond. Um, yes. So- those are some of the, some of the covers that we did. And then when I went to college, I played in a band with some friends that I met there and started to take it more and more seriously. And then in like 1990, maybe moved to Boston, which is where I was going to the university outside of Boston and then went to Boston. And I sort of fell in immediately with a like kind of a scene that was becoming successful. Like, I don't know if you know bands like uh, the Blake Babies or Juliana Hatfield or um, the Lemonheads. Like I started hanging around with bands like that, and I had a roommate who was in a, a successful kind of punk band called Bullet La Volta, and they got signed to RCA back when they were signing all the grunge bands. There was just a lot. It was a very yes. exciting time. So I was in Boston playing in a band that wasn't great, but I started to feel what it, you know what this life could be, and got really excited. Yeah, and because uh, I know Julian okay. Hatfield, because I managed to interview her, and I know the Lemonheads, but I didn't get to many, meet um, him. But there was another band who were kind of quite a more of a wacky band from Boston, which they did something like Jackie O'Nassa's something, and there was something, it was a title which probably had the word sex in, which I can't quite remember, but they were kind of a big, the drummer went on to be in Sugar, and I don't know if that rings a bell, but... Um, uh, that's Bob Mould's band. Um yeah, I don't remember which band that is. There was like there was a lot of it was like a big scene at the time. It was the, there was and it was kind of all over the place. There was the Mighty Boss Tones, which are you know the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, was yeah, ska. We um, loved a bit of ska, didn't we? So um, yeah, so look, I'm I'm just I'm just going to have to tell you what this band was because because then you'll go, oh yeah, that band we loved them. His name was Malcolm Travis, and he was in a band called Human Sexual Response. I know. Human Sexual Response. Yeah, I remember the name. I think I don't remember the band. Yes, but um, I remember the name. But Mission, you know, Mission of Burma was there at the time, and Volcano yeah. Sons was offshoot of that. So did you um, get this book? This one, which no. is kind of this guy who did all the Boston bands from that period. 
No, that looks cool. Is uh, is, is he manage them or is it? Uh, no, he was the photographer there. Oh, uh, cool, cool. So he, you know, so he was telling me about the Boston scene, which I hadn't sort of realised. Obviously, been in Norwich, and because he said all the Ameri- all the British bands would go and play in Boston. So if you were in Boston at that period, you just got to see just every band before they went to New York and did their tour of the East Coast. So, you know, he he was a young kid who photographed them all and then put the negatives in a shoebox and till about three years ago and then went hey you've got some great pictures you should yeah work. you know so um I, I, I liked a lot of, so you're you're from there's a lot of great british bands too coming out in, in the late 80s out of yes. england as well well i i you know because that period you know i i was too young for punk and post-punk again not really quite there for it at that stage which obviously but it was kind of 83 and it was the years of the smiths when they kind of started to appear and do their thing and then I suppose I was just that age where I started going to gigs, you know, you know, it was a kind of religious experience for the next, you know, X amount of years. So there was all that world of people like um, the June Brides and the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and, the, you know, the Wedding Present, all the all the indie bands. And there, there was a kind of a, I put it as a five-year kind of period of, you know, like with the Smiths going until 87 and they broke up and then there was a bit of a like, oh, this is a bit strange. And then, you know, ecstasy comes along, you know, that kind of changes a musical bit. And also what I've gathered from doing this is that, you know, you get the next wave of kind of teenagers who want their band and they want to discover their new artists. They don't want somebody who's been around the block and been snogging somebody else. They want to find somebody who's new and fresh, don't they? So um, there yeah. you go. They want their own scene. They want their they want to discover that new single and think that's they're the only one who know know that band and that band are yep. to them individually. So then yeah, so you came along with your musical moment kind of towards the late eighties, which in the UK was things like um I suppose there's that shoegazy scene, wasn't there? Like um My Bloody Valentine and the Sundays as well came along, and then there was a lot of bands on Sarah Records, which were also, you know. The introverts, but then we had 4AD and they had the Pixies and Throw Muses, and then we had obviously yeah. Bleach, Nirvana, Bleach album, which no one liked. But I went to see them on that tour, supporting that's Tad. A, and that's a great record. I love that record. I love that record. I thought Nevermind. I didn't really get into Nevermind until years afterwards. I thought that's all right, but everyone likes them. See, I was one of those irritating people who just who, who only thought the first album was any good. So, apart from the Smiths, their first album was dreadful, but. That's a different story, but that side one of Bleach is brilliant. So, um, it just Love it. A, yeah. And John Peel had this a compilation called Sub Pop 100, and I remember him playing tracks on it, and it was just awesome. So, at that stage, that was good. So, what did you study at university at this stage? Uh, creative writing, right? Was, so, you were definitely you know, going for the arts, yeah. I was always more more into the arts, I, I couldn't, uh, I didn't fare very well in the math and math and sciences. No. Um, I liked reading and I liked writing and uh, yeah, I was doing that until so after Boston, I went down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I don't know if you're familiar at all with that scene, but there was a great scene in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in the nineties. Um, and it was like bands like super chunk. I don't know if you're familiar archers of low. Oh yes. Um, uh, Polvo, the aforementioned Polvo. There's just a lot of great, uh, great bands and very supportive, cool scene. Yes. Um, everybody worked in restaurants and I managed a club and we all, uh, you know, we all 
just went and saw bands every night and that's what we did and played in bands and supported each other it was fantastic yes they, they, yes it, it was an interesting scene so there was people like was it girls against boys as well and bands like that was there were dc yeah yeah and like it was all probably peripherally there was just um there's a band called versus they were from new york actually unwound like all just kind of like sebado um like these are all kind of big bands at the time that that we liked and like to emulate um, yes. the band i was in there uh, it's, it's interesting because one thing i've noticed with the U- usa is that each region has a real scene doesn't it whereas in I mean, I know the UK does a bit, but we are such a small country that, you know, you just literally sort of, you know, it's not quite like oh, we get that one scene and that and you have to be in a band. Yeah, it's just very different, isn't it? You know, when when people have spoken about traveling sort of, I don't know, nine hours to go to a gig to see their favorite band play and you think nine hours. I felt so bad because I, you know, sometimes oh, that's an hour in the car. I can't be bothered to go. And now, you know, and then someone says, oh, yeah, we spent nine hours driving somewhere to see a band. You think, oh, God, that's that's more commitment than I had. So, um, oh, yeah, that's way that's way too much time. But but it, I think the Internet kind of changed all that for the worse, sadly. Um, maybe it's for the better for, you know, but I think like. Things just kind of get flattened out and streaming the fact that like you don't have to start a scene locally and then tour and like gradually build up, you know, you could be people in Hawaii could know me tomorrow, you know, just because of the internet, which never happened before. So I think these kind of scenes that germinated and grew naturally and were, you know, geography was important. I'm not sure that that's still going to happen the same in quite the same way. No, that does that, that one. Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, it's kind of one of those narratives, isn't it? Especially from the eighties where most bands, you know, they had 12 months, a 12 months but, well, honeymoon period, but, you know, young people hanging out, just playing lots of music and doing what you do, you know, drinking and smoking. And then, you know, getting a single, you know, John Peel played at John Peel Session, first album, little transit van going around all the little indie night, the indie clubs in the UK. And, it, you know, you know, there's nothing better to do. And then the second album or third, if you're lucky, and, and that's it, which, which is quite nice and sort of, yeah, wholesome, really, isn't it? When you look at it like that, because it's it's a clean narrative. Yeah, yeah, and it's also, I, I just it was just fun to be a part of a of a scene. You know, I I, th- I think I heard a little bit about like stuff that's happening in London now. Like there's like sort of like maybe a London scene, but like yes. you know, like like the Manchester Manchester thing. Like I don't know if that'll happen again. Be- no, because like a bunch of like sounding bands from the same town. Um, I don't know. I'm, we'd love to sit back and see, or like a Chapel Hill, or a Seattle, or a, you know, or any any of these like kind of cities that kind of blow up, you know, yeah. and there like a, a, a sort of a, a media moment. I don't know if that's going to happen again. But well, I think it was, um, you know, Cherry Red Records, who's the label in in the UK that seems to they put out new stuff, but they do buy out buy lots of catalogs and labels from decades ago and reissue stuff, and they put out you know a a, a Liverpool compilation from a period, you know, from the late seventies to mid eighties. You know, I think that was a five CD box set, and then they did one on Manchester. That was a seven CD box set, and then one from Sheffield because Sheffield had that kind of slightly avant-garde electronic kind of vibe to it. You know, with people, 
yeah from that kind of scene you know so there was this kind of rather strange and slightly you know curious and interesting time and I think yeah they've done one on yeah they they, they you know like you know I was just responding to what you said about the, the you know regions did have their 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 scene and their different yeah it was a, it was a place and a time and it would never be repeated basically and you know yeah. and there was also in the UK in the 80s we were very poor so there was a sort of slight element there wasn't much else to do and there's a bit of desperation and you might as well do this as as because there's not not much else and I know that's a bit simplistic but it did sort of help the creative process so um and then you had the John Peel show and then three weekly music papers like the enemy sounds and melody maker, which obviously again helps the creative process as well. So um, there you go. It was a, a British band called love and rockets that I liked a lot. From, oh yes. From that time the, as well. The, the Bauhaus people. Yeah. The Bauhaus people. The Bauhaus uh, people. They had a, a record called seventh dream of teenage heaven. That was a great, great record. It's funny. I prefer Pete Murphy's solo stuff than I do Bauhaus. Shouldn't really admit that, should I? But there you go. It's not coming after you. It's okay. No, he'll be he'll he'll be able to sleep. Okay. So look. So when did you? Yeah. So rhythm guitar. Were you always a, a guitarist at this stage? It, uh, no, I started playing. I taught myself like kind of, you know, in my late teens and early twenties. But I've never. I'm not a good guitar player. I'm. A, I'm. I just kind of use it in service to write songs. And there are bands where I've been the front man, and bands where I play guitar and sing like i currently do uh but i don't love it no. like if people talk to me about gear i could care less I just no. don't. you're not robert no. Fripp, are you <laughs> no not at all i'm brookless i've not uh i just I, I like playing and i you know i like uh I, i'm just i'm self-taught and yes. i'm not good i'm so not good your, so with your first band was that thud Pucker. Thud Pucker. Yeah, that was my oh. first band in Boston. Yeah. Your first band. So you put yeah. out one single, didn't you? We put out a single at Athens, Ohio. There's like that's we met this band touring. Um I think the label's called Love Hammer. You are, Athens. you're right. Love Hammer Records in Columbia. Columbia's? Yes. Columbus, yeah. Ohio. Columbus. Yeah. That's a small label, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. And that, that was, was and your first single was Hot Frog. Hot Frog. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I have the forty-five still over here. My God, it's probably worth at least final. five five dollars on eBay. Maybe three. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I was, yeah, putting the, was, I was putting the package and postage in for two. Thank you. <laughs> um, but that was uh, yeah, that was the first single we did, and then Chapel Hill. I was in a band called Tinsel that did uh, put out a couple records on a label called Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a small label <clears> and. Apple called Jesus Christ that put out us and spatula and pipe and some polvo. So were you these were just kind of yeah, one band, one single, end of yeah. Uh Thud Pucker just did one single. Tinsel did like maybe three singles or two or three singles and um and two two full lengths. You did finding the perfect gift and quit while you're ahead. Yeah, quit while you're ahead, I feel is better. Like it's just a progression. Um, yeah, but it was with my friend Ed Slanker, who I was in Thud Pucker with as well. Right, blimey, right. So, were, all this time, were you was this post studying, or were you still studying? No, I was done. You were I was done. done. I I was set my sights on washing dishes and uh, you know cooking, being a short order cook and playing music. You got to have ambition at that age, haven't you? That's the main thing. Yeah, 
yeah. and washing dishes is quite zen. So that's good. Then, because on your on your press release, did you did you did you then do a Ziggy Stardust and sort of say that's it? I'm quitting music at this this stage, or were you still doing it? I was still doing it, and I I moved to New York from North Carolina. I went to New York, and I was in a band called The Last Band. Two bands. It was a band called Crack Eyes, and a band called The Last Band. And The Last Band was like a lot of fun very performative and we would we didn't put out anything but we were maybe the most successful band because we had a very good live show i was just like a front man and we would play like these huge loft parties in brooklyn and that was like early 2000s and then i i started i had been an actor as a kid and um i started moving back into acting a little bit and music sort of went to the back burner and there was a time when i was playing with this band and I just felt like um, I didn't believe what I was doing. Like I right. was, I was writing, playing, writing songs, but like because I was sort of late twenties, early thirties, I had this disconnect between what I was singing and who I was. You, you know, like it was kind of like um, I, I was still writing kind of angsty kind of stuff, and I wasn't that angsty. If that you know, like I just didn't feel like it was really genuine. And I sort of put music aside until recently, when I was able to write songs as an adult, and it was like a a different experience yeah my god you you're having a bit of a Kurt Cobain moment there weren't you <laughs> I, I maybe I don't know I, I just was it was funny because we were playing a show and our the guy that was drumming was really good friends with Yola Tango and they were at the show and I'm like sitting there looking at them and knowing like how amazing they are and I just felt shitty and like I felt shitty about what I was doing and I was just like I kind of Stopped. That was like the last show I played for a long time. I think. Oh my god, you just dropped the mic. Kind of, yeah. The mic kind of dropped me. Like it wasn't like I just. Didn't, <laughs> it just. It, I didn't. What I think was a healthy thing because I think like wanting to be a successful musician, it's not a career path. Uh, no. <laughs> it seems like it at the time, and when you're young, it can't. It can be, you know, like for the for the two people who get to do it for a living. Yes. But um. For most people, that's not, you don't really get to do that. And so I was happy to find other things that I could like make. I wanted to have a family and I wanted to like, you know, make a little money. And so it, it was okay to put it aside. Yes. It, it happened for a reason. For the right time. So what, what, was acting then the thing that you were able to make a living on? I, yeah, for a while I was acting. Um, I started doing commercials again. So I was acted as a kid and I kept my uh, union membership. Screen Actors Guild. And so when I was back in New York City, I started to have friends. I fell in with a crowd who were like sort of bridged the divide between music and film. And some of them were like directors and directed commercials and music videos and things like that. And they cast me in some stuff. And I started doing commercials. And that was like kind of lucrative, you know, to do advertisements. And, and, so, and then I got an agent. I started doing that. And I started trying to do a film and television. And that became my new, my backup pipe dream. I was like, oh, if I can't do... You know, if I can't be a rock star, I might as well be a movie star because you know that's just what life deals. Someone, with. someone's got to have that murky world, don't they? That murky yeah, path. someone's got to do that. So because I went. Um, I did that, and I, I went out to LA for a couple months to try to like what they call pilot season when they make all the TV shows. They used to do it like by season, and I didn't do shit. And why? Or sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on the show. I didn't, it didn't <laughs> go <right>. up. <laughs> uh, but I started writing again. Um, and this was like sort of like early-ish internet. I started writing a blog about auditions, like kind of an anonymous, anonymous blog about how humiliating the whole thing was. 
And that was called Loser Actor, which was seen by a bunch of people. And one of those people was brought to the attention, a friend of mine, Joe Ventura, brought up the attention of this ad agency called Wyden Kennedy. And they brought me in as a copywriter. Like, you know, kind of like I didn't have any formal writing training uh, with advertising, but I, I came in as a copywriter uh, in advertising. And that's sort of like how I was able to have a family. And you know, it was a pretty cool job, too. As far as yeah, excellent. There yeah. So then then we had, you know, the dreaded, you know, lockdown period. So when did you all sort of moment, when did the music come calling back to you? Um, a few before the lockdown, a few years, I started writing songs again. Kind of ironically, I was in a band that we only practiced twice, but it was called Dads. It was a sort of a concept band, D A D Z. And the idea was just to totally lean into like being dads in middle age and like play with fanny packs and khakis and you know, just really embrace it and write songs like uh, I'm No Longer Attractive, um, Heading Downstairs, just like. Songs that were kind of like about that. And yes. in the process, I wrote a song that's on the record called Brand New Buick. It's like the last song. And I realized that it wasn't that funny. And it, I liked writing the song. And I actually had, I started to find that I had things to say that weren't jokes. Um, and I started writing songs again. And that's like, I just sort of let myself, you know, kind of do that. And then I started writing more and more songs and I had, you know, five or six serious songs. And I was playing with my friend, Joe Ventura, who lives in New York, who would just get a practice space and play. Yes. And yeah. And then um, that's because kind of led to this record eventually. Yes. Well, it's an epic record and amazing production as well. I mean, it's oh, kind of you. interesting because, um, because you, you know, I, I think the single, you know, well, I think it's the single, the ghost of San Francisco. Uh-huh. It's just it's just stunning, and also there's a really lovely kind of country twang, well, countryish song called "Out Outbound Track" as well, which is just a sort of gorgeous song as well. So you, yeah, so the and and like I said, the production on it is is kind of it's a step up from the you know a lot of kind of I wouldn't say comeback albums, but people who sort of have got a bit of a studio and they've got of you know bits and pieces where this does sound like it's a very slick a slick project that's uh, come together. The, the producer is a guy named Ray Ketchum. Um, and he, he has a studio in Montclair, New Jersey, where I live called magic door. He's a great producer and he's in a band called Elk city and they do all their recording there as well. And then a bunch of the mixing was done by a friend of mine named Chuck Johnson, who is a composer, an incredible composer. He played pedal steel on, on that song outbound track you referenced. He played pedal steel on it. Oh, and, right. Uh, and he, he, um, he, he, he's a, you should check out his records. They're very, uh, they're really, really cool. They're kind of, amb- it gets labeled as ambient country because it kind right. of takes a pedal steel and runs it through effects and stuff. Um, but it's quite beautiful. And he's also a really, you know, he's great in the studio as well. He does mixing and mastering. So he, he, uh, mixed some of the record and played on it and, and Ray's studio in Montclair, you know, where I did everything else, which was a great way to record during the pandemic because, um i just you just can't walk into a place with you know a full band and stay there and bang out an album or the way i used to do it this was a completely different process for me but one that i one that i enjoyed immensely did you with the album did you sort of bring together a band to to put the 
you know material together or did it did it sort of come sort of quite over a period of time you know each song I just wondered if you'd got the album and all the tracks completed before you went into the studio or whether you did it over a period of time we did it over we built it piecemeal and right. that was like something about the, te the technology that I didn't know you could do. Like I could just went in there with a rhythm guitar and Ray was able to, I played to a click track, sort of like build what Ray called like a spine to the song. And then you could kind of play everything over that and it would sync up. So yes. things just kind of put on there. Um, I had this guy, Scott Anthony, he was a great bass player. He wrote his parts and he played. And my friend Daniel London played lead guitar. He's in uh, a friend of mine in Montclair. He's an actor and a writer. And he, um, he played, uh, he played lead guitar. Uh, my friend Joe Ventura I was telling you about, it. he played a lot of drums and Ray played some drums too. Yes. How did Joe cope being a drummer in a drummer studio? Who's obviously going to be very tight on rhythm and beat and the click track. Did he cope with the stress and pressure? He did. Okay. He, he, he came out for like two days and he had never played to a click track either. Um, right. but he, he, he did fine. He like banged it out. He's just like a real solid drummer. He's not a flashy drummer. He's just like sort of plays to, uh, it goes to, he played on goes to San Francisco. He did a nice job. Yeah. It was just, he locked in. He was like kind of stressed out. He'd never done it, but yes, but he got I, would it. I would imagine he could have been very stressed. I know I spoke to quite a few drummers who got, you know, crushed in the studio with the sort of producer. With the with the click and the producer who was feeling a little bit irritated with um their lack of timing so um it wasn't good it, it sounded quite horrendous really but then also did you include your members of your family for your vocals and keyboards yes uh that uh my daughter maple uh maple monk she sang on um outbound track and uh, uh homemade another song and um my son George, he he quit piano lessons, but he he knows enough to play some. So he played keyboards on a couple of tracks, and then I forgot to mention uh, Megan Riley, who's a singer songwriter who's put out some records. She sang backup on a bunch of stuff as well. I think she really helped make the sound of the record. It's kind of critical. When did you realize that you kind of had material for the whole album? You know, did it sort of did it surprise you? You went oh. Actually, you know, from being a bit more of a jokey band to writing, like you said, brand new Buick, and then thinking, actually, I'm going to change this from just being a bit of a novelty joke to kind of something a bit more serious. Did, you know, did it sort of keep sort of going and going? And then you thought, actually, now I've got eight songs, I might as well keep going and getting a whole album's worth. Yeah, kind of. I was originally going to do, I was going to just record with a bunch of friends, like over a weekend at the studio. Um, but things went wrong twice and the plans like totally changed. I was going to sort of bring in some loose stuff. And then I have all these musician friends. We were just going to do a weekend. Um, and then some like family health issues kind of got in the way. I had to cancel it twice. And then I ended up doing it this way, but yes. we ended up a couple of songs. We actually had more songs. And I think there's two B sides like on, on Spotify or on streaming services that are like the B sides that aren't on the record. And then I picked up a lot of steam since then. Since the record came out, I've been writing um, the next one, hopefully. hopefully <laughs> the next one. <laughs> so what's the, you know, what was that, you know, like a track like The Ghosts of San Francisco? What was that sort of inspiration? How did that one particularly come together? Um, I think I just saw a trailer for a movie about San Francisco. I think it was just about gentrification. Like it started out, a lot of my songs... Um, 
they sort of they gain meaning as they go. Like uh, I don't I think it might have just been like I was thinking about gentrification and about like how much San Francisco has changed. It's very very wealthy now, and you know all of Silicon Valley is there and tech and stuff. And I think I was thinking about the way it used to be and all the hippies and the people who made San Francisco, San Francisco and how they were feeling about it. And I think I just sort of started from that perspective. It was um, very impersonal for me, like for, for a song, like it didn't, it it was, um, I think a lot, a lot of my songs are, you know, more based on my experience and stuff, but this was, kind of making up these characters and you know it was a it was a cool exercise that is yes it was a came from a different place and 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 a track like heavy shoes which is this is one that actually you've got ray playing drums on this one haven't you Mm -hmm. yeah how did this one come about i was just a song about empathy it was about like um trying to understand people's hardships and you know, I think at a, there might have been a time where I was less empathetic or sympathetic and like trying to sort of get myself to a place where I could understand pe- people's and their motivation a little bit more. Yes, which, um, yes, I think we all become a little bit kinder as we get older. Well, theory, hopefully, anyway, that it does. I hope help. so. I hope yeah. so, too. <laughs> this is our dream. I, do, I did meet someone the other day who I thought, mm, you have got... Very little empathy, but that's life. But you're you've got a B side, haven't you? Strange, strange desires, which is a bit more shoegazy. Yeah, that is more shoegazy. Um, I like that track, but it was just it didn't make the record. That and Liver Alarm were two two tracks uh, that didn't make the record. But um, yeah, Strange Desires. Was, I think Megan did a nice job on that, and that, it's not something that we really can play live. It's got like some sort of looping and stuff in it, or I haven't tried yet. Anyway, maybe we'll get there eventually. Yes. So, does that mean that you've got um, you've got the sort of enthusiasm to go out again and um, yes, pick up the pick up the mic and um, head towards the stage? We did it once. Uh, we've done one show like a month ago, and I think we're going to try to do it a couple more times. It's it was scary. Like I hadn't done it for so long. And uh, I was surprised at how nervous I was, you know. Uh, I'd just done it so many times in the past, but it may be even 15 years since I performed. Yes, um, for, an, for an actor, that's quite unusual. Normally people can do that, right, I'll just play the character and I'll be okay. Yeah, but I think something about playing guitar and singing and, and you know, I'm playing under the name, I've never played under, like, my solo name. I think it's a lot more personal and maybe earnest or something and... and I feel more exposed maybe than I thought I would. Um, but, you know, I will overcome. <laughs> yes. Hopefully get better as but time goes on. It's always interesting to sort of work out the process of why one gets the nerves or gets the shakes at the moments because, um, yes, it does happen to all of us, doesn't it, where the fear, I think there's that moment of fear and being exposed. Somehow it's sort of, it's quite weird, isn't it, really? And, and work Yeah, out. well, it's it's overwhelming. You don't even really, it's not even like you really have a, you know, you can really describe it. It's not like I'm afraid of X or it's just like, it's just, it is more the fear, you know, capital T, capital F, uh, that kind of takes a hold of you and not, there's no ration, rationality to it. No, absolutely. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out in this interesting and sometimes confusing world, is there any little bit of advice you might've just said to them as they were sort of, about to go to college or university or 
being part of a band? Uh, as far as musically, I wish I had gotten to the place I'm at now as with my songwriting then. I think I, you know, I just think um, it was just more like angry and wanting to sound like a lot of other bands. Like it was just less personal in some ways. And I just wish I could, I would just say, you know, be better. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's the maturity thing. I mean, the, the good, the great thing that, that that's kind of happened is that, you know, there's there's that kind of pop generation from the from the sixties and most of them a lot of them are still going and have sort of realized I mean they were at the forefront of like, well, no one's done this before and they they sort of realize, mm -hmm. well, you can just keep going. You don't have to stop just because people expect you to stop. And you know, people like David Bowie still did the, you know, that those couple last couple of albums, including Black Star, which was just like a musical, you know, as a masterpiece really in, in a lot of ways. And you know, I'm guessing as as an as an artist yourself and a you know writer, you you realize that actually there is there are ways to tackle the next phase of one's life. You know, and and the aging process it it doesn't just stop with you know a teen you know the teen sentiment, isn't it? A boy meets girl at the disco and you get married and it's all beautiful. That there are subjects you can sort of yeah sort of yeah you can you can tackle. you can yeah you can that was like um one epiphany i had i went to see the replacements they did like a reunion show and they played in forest hills queens and they were awesome they played all their old songs note for note but they were very much about being young you know bastards of young and they were it was about youth and about attitude and about and i was thinking like oh it'd be cool if they did another record as grown-ups like he's such a good paul Westerberg is such a great songwriter like it just felt like i'd be interested to hear what they had to, to say and that was a bit of an inspiration for me to start writing to, to try to write something, you know, true. If I could find the truth there, then I knew I could do it. Yes. Uh, but well, I guess Paul Westenberg, some of his solo stuff has been quite reflective and melancholic, hasn't it? Yes, it has. But I haven't followed it as much. Um, I followed, I've, I've listened to some records and stuff, but it hasn't, I don't know if he's been as active as he was no. back in the day. He's, but he's, there's you mentioned David Bowie. There are some people who can really write as adults. I saw Elvis Costello came through town. I'd never seen him. I was always a fan, but never like a huge fan. But I went and saw him and he was amazing and fantastic songwriter still. Like his new songs, which I've never heard before, still really landed because, he, yes. you know, he was such a great writer. But he's somebody I would point out that can write as a, as a you know, an adult. Yes, absolutely. So with the with the album, just going back to the album, you're on this, you you re recorded it, this is at um, Magic Door Studios. Is that mm -hmm. also, because they're also a label as well, aren't they? Yeah, so, they started a, a label, like the sort of like, for all the bands that recorded there and sort of created a little thing. It's cool. Yes. So you were able to release it on that label as, at the same time as have it produced and, or recorded there? Yeah, and then we did. I just got. Um, oh, exciting! I just yeah, very exciting. I just got vinyl. A vinyl copy. Oh my god, that's so cool! Uh, with my friend Ron Liberty, is an artist, and he did all the art for it. And it comes in like different colors. I did it on recycled vinyl, so you kind of don't know which copy is like a. Some could be blue. Some could be this odd salmon with blue streaks in it. Um, Wow. So I always, I always wanted to do like a vinyl LP that was important. So. 
Yes, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. It's quite That's nice, actually. And um, it's got a bit of a vibe of David Bowie's first ever record, which is the one from 1970. I think that's the Space Oddity one, which um, the photograph was done by a guy called Vernon Dewhurst, wasn't it? And um, his picture was kind of put on a image of a painting that was in the recording studio or the record label studio, I do believe. From memory, it's all very sketchy, actually. So then with that, which is quite handy having the label as well as the um, studio. So how far are you down the road for the next album? Um, I'm up to maybe six or seven songs. Right. Um, and I've been working out, working them out with Daniel and then uh, um, uh, his neighbor, Andrew, who's been playing bass, is a fantastic musician. And it's a little bit different in that I've sort of been working them out beforehand. I'm not sure how we'll actually do the recording process, whether it would be the same as last time. Yes. I record and we just build on it, or if we can get to a point where we can record it live in the room and then just put stuff on top, we'll see. Yes. Was there any moments or results that came out that you thought, that wasn't quite what I expected, but let's just go with it? Oh, in the studio? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. There's always those happy accidents. You know, and yeah. also those, like, train wreck accidents where you're like, oh, man, if I can go back and do that when I get out. <laughs> <laughs> yes so for anyone who's who's you know i mean personally i've mentioned the ghost of san francisco and also outbound track is there any other songs on it which you would sort of are the favorites or you would recommend if someone was just about to sort of launch into it um well i have a, a new music video i'm going to put out like in the next week week or so for a song called run um which is just very quick it's a little like sort of like oh, I'm not going to say punk, but it's kind of like a up, like a very up tempo kind of piece, which which I like quite a bit. I've been yes. liking these days. Um, and there's a song called Homemade, which is a little bit more, which is a very personal song about like you know having a family and how it feels for me. And uh, I, I I like that song more and more. It was a little, a little bit of a throwaway I thought when when we started, but it's starting to grow on me. Excellent. So, this is yeah. so interesting. It's de- it's developed a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And do you find that you use, you know, with lyrics, are there some that songs that come together quickly and others that you half write and then you have to just leave and then come back to again? Or do you complete everything and then move to the next pro- you know, set of lyrics and so um no, I I kind of like hammer them for a little while. I think that was one really good thing about advertising. Uh, taught me is how to edit um i think when i was younger i would just write the lyrics i'd write a song and be like those are the lyrics and there'd be no you know there was there was uh no reflection and no no trying to no craft really about trying yeah. to improve it and i right now i i spend a lot more time with lyrics like i'll really from for most songs like i'll really work until i think i have it right until yes. i i know what i want to say because you know, you know I just, especially because I know it's more of a recording project than a live thing. We're not playing out like, you know, twice a week around town or something. So I want to make sure that when we record it, it's right, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Rob Monk for giving me the time for that. This is, um, yes, I'll give you a link to the Bandcamp page as well in the link. So um, below. 
in the text anyway. But uh, massive thank you to everybody for that. Um, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to uh, contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, please. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.